Hello, and welcome to another edition of Law Technology Now. My name is Dan Rodriguez, and I'll be the host for today's show. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to our show one of my favorite legal innovators and thought leaders and action leaders, Mark Cohen, my friend Mark Cohen, who is CEO of Legal Mosaic. He's a regular columnist for Forbes, and I strongly recommend his always interesting uh, columns on uh, law. I'm, I'm hesitating because it's hard to summarize exactly what the topics are about. Some involve legal technology, the changing dynamics in the legal profession, legal culture, et cetera, topics that we'll, we'll surely be able to, to, to touch on. He is truly one of the great legal innovators of our time not only nationally, but internationally, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome him to the show uh, today. Before we get into our show, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Acumass, patent and trademark renewal payments made easy. Find out how Acumass.com can take the stress out of annuities and save you money on European patent validations today. And Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. And Logical, thanks to our sponsor, Logical Instant Discovery Software for Modern Legal Teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at logical.com. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. So again, welcome, Mark. Thanks for taking time out of your your very busy schedule to 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 join us on this LTN podcast. It's always great to be with you, Dan. Albeit this time virtually. Exactly. Well, I hope I won't embarrass you, uh, Mark, in uh, noting that you seem to be enjoying a moment. <laughs> and uh, if enjoying is the right term, uh, what I mean by that is I see virtually see and listen to a variety of your posts of your webinars. Uh, you have been in this incredible uh, tag team with our mutual friend, Richard Suskind. I know talking about the future of law and of course your Forbes column that I mentioned. So this moment as it were, of course, is a moment for all of us given what we're experiencing on the one hand with COVID-19 and the pandemic, which is as we record here today is, is still uh, raging on sadly and tragically. And on the other hand, the evolution and changes in the legal and the business uh, uh, marketplace. So what's unique now? I mean, what is what is going on sort of now as we speak in this ecosystem that has that has engaged uh, you and so many other uh, really incredible thought leaders who are, who are looking at these issues? Well, Dan, I have, uh, of course, pandemic, civil war, climate change problem, and global depression aside, I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. And that moment being the changes in the legal industry, of course. And I think that what is different, essentially, is that in a remarkably quick period of time, a matter of literally weeks, think of what happened within the legal ecosystem. The Academy, which, of course, you are a stalwart of, the Academy has gone um, virtually completely to online teaching, something that in many quarters it has resisted for decades. And uh, in terms of legal providers, and uh, I don't mean just law firms, but also in-house departments and so-called alternative providers, all of these legal delivery sources have themselves gone from office-centric kind of workplaces to uh, remote workforces. And I think the implications of those things are really significant. In a nutshell, Dan, because I'm not going to give a 10-minute answer, as you teasingly said during the setup <laughs> that I would do, I'm going to get in under nine. 
what has really happened, I think, is that the circumstances that we find ourselves in have done two things really to the industry. Number one, they have cast a very bright light on latent technologies, underutilized technologies that existed and have existed in some cases for a very long time that allow us to be able to work in a much more dispersed fashion and yet very cohesively. The other thing that it has done is I think it has given legal buyers an affirmation that once you cross the divide of uh, being able to work remotely or being able to learn remotely, you begin to see that there are not only alternatives that are viable, but they may actually be better than the default models and, and delivery systems, whether it's education or delivery of legal services that you had. And I think those are the two things that I would cite as being very different this time around. Can I probe a little bit? Let me go back to the first part, which is the develop, the availability of technologies. As, as you said, th- those technologies were available before, but they were underutilized and now they're, be util- uh, they're being utilized. Can you give us a couple examples of that? Of course, I mean, just take, take the low-hanging fruit, which is Zoom and the availability right. of, of video conferencing. Do you have something else in mind? Well, sure. I mean, look, back in 2008, when I co-founded ClearSpire, we had a global geographically dispersed workforce. We had uh, tools that would enable us to seamlessly collaborate with clients and they would be able to identify where we were on a particular matter and work with us if they chose to on matters in real time. That would be one example. Uh, another example of And it didn't take, work, let me just jump in and say, it didn't take a pandemic or anything like that, right, to encourage you at that in that setting to make greater use of, of, uh, of remote technology and, and, and engagement without right. always being on airplanes. And, and uh, if I may, um, you know, just to step even further back in time, I go back to 1991, which I'm sure many of your listeners weren't even born at that time. But in 1991, I had a multi-city law firm that I had founded and was the managing partner of. I went to AT&T, who was then one of my biggest clients, and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to be able to link up these three offices so that we have one centralized chirpy voice attendant. I want to have one set of legal resources, books, but I'd like to see if we could uh, go digital with that. And I'd like to have video conferencing where we could not only video conference between and among our three offices, but with our biggest clients. This was back in 1991, Dan, and we did it. And in a matter of 90 days, I stroked a check for a million dollars to AT&T. We had all of these things. So if we were doing that in 1991, I dare say that's, that's what, almost 30 years ago, and it worked perfectly fine. Why did it take so long? Why did it take a pandemic before people suddenly realized we can really do it this way? And by the way, there are all sorts of things that that has, it drives changes in models. It, it allows for, you know, sort of more agile workforces, more flexibility in terms of when people work, how people work, and significantly with whom they can and very often should collaborate. Because once you start working remotely and you realize that it's really the competency that you're looking for, not the person who happens to be working from the same office building as you do, it doesn't take a big leap of logic or imagination 
for clients to say, maybe I can start, you know, really cherry picking the people with the best competencies as opposed to necessarily going to one provider for all of my services. So as I'm listening to you, you're toggling between the interests of the clients, the consumers, the buyers, and the interests of the lawyers, whether in law firms or others. Of course, I don't need to tell you those interests are often misaligned rather than aligned. One profound way in which they're misaligned, which is relevant to what we're talking about, is the holy grail of the billable hour, right? So what you call and label efficiency, which of course is of enormous benefit to the clients and consumers, may not be the benefit of the law firms, he says cynically, right? So how does that that marry with reliance on the billable hour? Yeah, well, I would just say that the reliance on the billable hour is really such a small part of the overall transformation that I see going on in the industry. And what I see going on in the industry is that the client, the customer, particularly in the corporate space, has wrested control of the buy-sell dynamic from the provider, historically the law firm. So the first iteration of it was, you know, disaggregation to so-called early stage legal process outsourcing, you know, high volume, low risk type of activities. Then after the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, you started to see a lot more work migrating away from law firms and into in-house legal departments. But increasingly after, um, in the more recent years, you've seen a lot of in-house work being done by firms like uh, Axiom, by companies like United Lex. And the reason for that was, is because they had deep benches. It's not just a matter of price. It's also about competency. It's about flexibility. And it's not necessarily having to take on the exorbitant cost of uh, FTEs, full-time employees. And so you put all of those things together and you say that the customer now is really in the driver's seat and the customer is really not focused, I don't think, so much on the billable hour, but who in the first instance should be doing the work, who has the competencies and increasingly, Dan, I think they are going to be looking to things like data-driven decisions as opposed to decisions made by anatomical parts. How many times have you heard a lawyer say, my nose tells me this or my gut tells me that? To, to business, that's laughable. They are looking for data-driven decisions, of which, by the way, law is only one of several uh, business risk factors that they have to put into the mix before they can make an enlightened decision. So those are the things that I think are really changing. So to, to circle back to the pandemic, I mean, a very oversimplistic way to look at it, I, I'll concede, but one, one perspective on this might be, look, the firms and, and, and clients are, are undergoing, as we speak, enormous changes because the overall, the economy is tanking and the overall right. share of legal spend is down and we're, we're hoping and praying and awaiting a comeback, but that's sort of an across the board hit. And when we see that, to the extent that, that that plays an important role in that, we don't necessarily see innovation. We instead see this, this wishing and wishing and wishing that this too will pass and then there'll be a, then there'll be a bounce back. How yeah. much of that is driving this? I think quite a bit, quite a bit. You know, to the issue of the bounce back, I mean, again, I don't have a crystal ball to the extent I ever owned one. It probably cracked with Clearspire, but I would say this. 
that I spend a lot of a lot of time with GCs and large companies around the world, and I'm increasingly spending a lot of time with CFOs of those companies, chief digital officers of those companies, and in some instances, CEOs of those companies. And what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that they are looking for a paradigm shift in the legal function. How is it and what is it that lawyers are expected to do and what should they not be doing? And I think what you're seeing is you are seeing from the sophisticated consumers, what you're seeing is a real questioning of, you know, when do I in the first instance need a lawyer and, you know, what is and what is not legal practice? As you well know, legal practice until fairly recently was pretty much anything that lawyers said it was. It was almost as if it was their birthright upon getting a a law license to determine what it was that they and only they could do. Well, a birthright, just to stick with the metaphor, a birthright that was enforceable by law uh, because of unauthorized practice of law rules. Exactly right. But if you look at, for example, the UK, a, a regulatory scheme I know you are very well acquainted with, and you look at the way legal practice has been defined, it is six very narrowly drawn so-called reserved activities. And only those six activities that, you know, that, that only lawyers can engage in. So everything else is open game. Now, that doesn't mean that any charlatan off the street you know, can come and start doing it. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that increasingly law is truly legal delivery is not just practice, but it is also, you know, uh, the intersection of business skills, technology, and a whole host of other things collectively referred to by many in our industry as legal operations. The business of delivering legal services, which of course is very different than the practice of law. So we're going to talk a bit about what implications that has for the, not only the practice of lawyering, but for lawyers themselves. And we'll do that after the break. So let's take a, take a break here from our sponsors. Hey, law firms, getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Trying to cut costs? You're not alone. In today's climate, a five-figure e-discovery bill per month is steep. Don't pay that. Use Logical to reduce expense and control your discovery process. Get started today for only $250 per matter and they'll waive migration costs from competing platforms. For more information, visit logical.com slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. Increase productivity and profitability through Acumas.com. Acumas provides cost-effective and reliable annuities management while keeping customer satisfaction at the helm of the action. With 40 years of excellence in the field of IP renewals, Acumas understands how quickly annuities can become burdensome for clients who would prefer their focus elsewhere. Contact info at acumas.com or visit acumas.com to discover how you can benefit from a management solution tailored to your needs. Welcome back. So Mark, let let me offer you a thought experiment. 
and it really builds on just what the, the just the sort of fascinating picture you've been painting about the changing uh, dynamic in, in legal business. So let's start with a, a group of uh, of uh, junior partners, right? Folks who have a lot of their career ahead of them, but but they're you know they're sort of invested in, in law firms. They come to you for advice. Okay, how should we? Uh, react to this to this marketplace. Should we get out of the practice of law? Should we significantly engage in what's called upskilling? Should we, you know, should we be the uh, the sky is falling folks who come to our firm? What would you advise them about how to best prepare themselves and pivot as professionals in this uh, given this uh, these changes? You know, there is no one size fits all because the first thing I would do to each individual is say, you know, what's your objective here? What, what is it that really floats your boat? But um, I realize that you're asking more generally. And so this is what I would offer in response. Uh, first of all, I don't think there is anything inherently wrong with law firms. There is no reason why law firms can't continue to do good and do well. But I think it really goes very much to the model and to the culture. I think that the partnership model is, as you know, built on historically on labor intensity, on a pyramidal structure. You are rewarded more for your input than you are for your output and more from, you know, just the amount of sheer labor that you are putting down on your timesheet as opposed to the results or the efficiency and how it ultimately impacts clients. And so that model, which worked for a very long time, is now being challenged. The, the billable hour is just, you know, one of many manifestations, in my view, of that, of that challenge. So I think that that is the model part of it. In terms of the culture part of it, I think that goes with the model. You know, it used to be when you were a young lawyer, you would bide your time, you would be an associate for eight, 10 years typically. And if you were a good doobie, you had a pretty decent shot at becoming a partner. And if you were in a partner at that firm, then the firm would, in a very genteel way, make sure that you became a partner in maybe a, a, a lesser tiered firm. Today, that has changed, of course, because there's a lot of instability. And in terms of the culture of, of law firms, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's a real challenge because you know, there's a whole generation, there are probably two or three generations of lawyers who've worked for large firms many of whom have virtually no direct client contact. And when I say client contact, I'm not even talking about the general counsel. I'm talking about, you know, the person who is in the business that the general counsel is servicing. So you the, are, the client's a black box, as it were. Right. From there. Yeah. You are so many steps removed that you begin to think that your client is either your immediate supervisor within the firm or maybe, you know, the, 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 the in-house lawyer. And I think that has a, a, a tendency, number one, you know, you think that the client is another lawyer. Lawyers, you know, tend to think like other lawyers. But, and that's caused, I think, this tremendous divide between lawyers and the businesses that they are serving. Business, as you know, operates on very different methodologies, very different speeds, very different reward systems, very different metrics, and on and on and on. And I think one of the tragedies of the profession, which I think is going to be addressed, and one of the reasons why you're beginning to see the transformation, is clients are beginning to say, hey, 
you know, I, since I'm buying a trillion dollars of global legal services, maybe I have some say in terms of who and how they're being delivered and what kinds of models and what kinds of cultures I am going to patronize and what kinds of skills are necessary. So I think these are really, Dan, in my view, some of the, you know, sort of big changes um, that are all, um, we're reaching a point of convergence. And I think it's all being driven by the, the client. So back to your question, I would tell those folks that, number one, if you want to remain as a law firm, I suggest you break off from your firm I suggest that you start a firm that is going to start from the perspective of the client. What is it that the clients need? What kind of you know, structure, what kind of model would best suit clients? I'd say that I wanna be very differentiated. I'm not necessarily going to be all things to all clients. If I'm going to practice, I have practice skills, I want them to be truly differentiated. I want pricing to be efficient. I want to use data. I want to be better communicators and provide better service to clients. And finally, I want to create an environment where I recognize unless I'm going to outsource all of my technology, which is certainly something that could be done, unless I'm going to outsource my project and process management, which certainly is an option, then I'm going to give a seat at the management table for those you know, who have those skill sets and recognize that they are just as important in you know, the servicing of clients today as it is being an expert in a particular legal uh, domain. That's great. You know, and I, I started out this question by saying it's a thought experiment. And without naming names, you and I can think, you especially, of some examples of some lawyers and some and, uh, prominent lawyers who have morphed or shifted or pivoted in exactly the way you're suggesting. This is a good segue too to take an earlier stage in the process, and that is that is law students and, right. and, and lawyers just entering the profession. You mentioned one central point, and I and you've you've spoken about this eloquently so many times in the past and in your Forbes columns, which is the necessity of collaboration and multidisciplinary skills, and in particular, giving lawyers, law students, and young lawyers business skills, not just business law training but business skills in, in, in that regard. Can you talk a little bit about what advice you would give the proverbial groups of law students who, who want to best prepare for what's going to be a very different profession when they graduate? So let me just assume, Dan, for purposes of the question and my response, that we're talking about lawyers who want to go into you know, corporate law as opposed to you know, sort of retail law. So for those students, I would say, number one, how in the hell are you going to represent a business client if you can't read a balance sheet. How are you going to be able to represent a business client if you don't understand the basic vocabulary that, you know, business speaks in? You know, how many lawyers, sad to say, you know, know what net promoter score is? And yet, you know, that is something that, as you know, the business world lives and dies from. So that would be one set of skills. Not everybody has to be a coder. Not everybody, you know, has to create apps But I I think that lawyers certainly, and you know that this is now in many jurisdictions, this has now become a competency requirement for lawyers that they understand how technology is being applied to deliver legal services. And as you know, American bars are generally not known, you know, for being terribly forward thinking. Um, And you can quote quote me on that. (laughs) 
So, so, you know, I think that you basically have to be, it's table stakes to understand the basics of doctrinal law. And certainly, if you're interested in practicing law, you must learn your craft. You must learn your skills. But at the same time, you know, unless you are the one of, you know, maybe one half or one quarter of 1% of, you know, the law school grads who were going to be Supreme Court or federal clerks who were going to go into high levels of academia or sure. other things like that. I and mean, a small group, people, as, you, as you emphasize, yeah. Yes, a very small group. It's like saying, you know, I'm a basketball player and, you know, I'm going to go to the NBA. I would have a plan B. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think the plan B for lawyers has got to be to have a more rounded oeuvre of skills and also a couple of other things. I would really invest a little bit of time in learning what is going on both in the profession and the industry. And here I know I'm preaching to the choir. I can't resist jumping in to say something we simply don't do a very good job of doing in American law schools. Um, I would agree. I don't agree because it gives me any joy. Quite the opposite. You know, I would be remiss, Dan, if I didn't say one other thing. I feel for uh, American uh, law school graduates because so many of them have their career choices. Put aside whether or not, you know, they are adequately prepared. Put aside the fact whether or not they have these additional skills. But so many of them, you know, are laboring under the burden of, you know, significant student debt. And I think that, you know, that is a big elephant in the room. There was a marvelous article by an NYU Stern Business uh, professor, I think, his name is, I want to say, Good Now. It was in the New York Magazine. It was a remarkable article where he absolutely, you know, with a laser precision, analyzes, you know, what has happened with uh, higher education, you know, and just one of many things he says is that in the last 40 years, on average, it's increased by 1,400%, and that the profit margins are just enormous. And so, and quality, declaration against interest, but quality has not improved 1,400%. Now, now, I will give you blanket immunity in the discussion because I know you were a law school dean who really was, in my mind, an outlier. I wish there were more. But I, I do think that this is something which, unfortunately, I know many law students have told me, particularly from elite schools such as yours, where I spent a couple of very happy years, And they tell me, Mark, you know, I would love to have done something other than go into big law, but I really have to do it if I can get the job to start paying off my loans. So it it really, there are a lot of different things, some of which I think are in the student's control, others a little bit less so. But I think that clearly law schools have to take a long, hard look in the existential mirror because, uh, and I don't think you disagree with me, there will certainly be top schools like Northwestern and a handful of others are not going to be wanting for students to fill seats. But a lot of second tier schools are going to be borrowing from third tier schools, applicant pools, and a lot of third tier and fourth tier schools are going to be out of business. And I think that that should be a day of reckoning, both for you know the providers of educational services and also maybe the law students will be a little bit more, uh, become more discriminating consumers and say, 
is it really worth it to go to this school versus that school? I think that's exactly right. Mark, when we were preparing, and I know we're coming down to the end of the time, but when we were preparing for this interview, I thought of many questions to ask you. There's always more topics than time, issues of regulation, legal culture. Actually, I want to end on this note. We are experiencing, as we speak and recording this, this uh, I don't know what what uh, vernacular to use, a, a period of upheaval and, uh, and protests that is heartbreaking, uh, as is, and I know you agree with that and the origins and the reasons for it the murder of, of Mr. George Floyd and others. You have been a champion, a really an eloquent champion for the importance of diversity in the legal marketplace in a variety of forms. And I, I wonder if you just take a couple minutes as we wind down to, to, to try to reflect on what, what we can do as a profession to, to do better, to really meet the imperative that you've, that you've uh, again, written and talked about so much uh, with respect to diversity in our profession. Well, Dan, I am so glad that you asked that question. And so you know, there, there's been a lot of, I think, good-natured intention to bring more diversity into the profession. But, you know, again, this goes to culture. This goes to, you know, how, in the first instance, how is a good law school prospect measured? And all too often, it's by a very narrow set of criteria. Is the person a good test taker? In many instances now, regrettably, can the person or the person's parents or benefactors pay the full freight tuition? You know, and I think as a profession where I always learn that you're serving two clients simultaneously, one is the client that engages or retains you, but equally the other client is the larger society. I think we as a profession have to come back to what makes the profession so great. And they think we've lost our way a little bit. And how, you know, how can we enforce the laws if, you know, we don't follow them ourselves? So, you know, you have a gender pay disparity within our profession. The statistics in terms of advancement and all sorts of other things, you know, are, are, are just appalling to say nothing of our professional internal problems with drug abuse, alcoholism, suicide, mental health issues. Clearly, we can do better. We must do better. And on the societal role, I'm shocked, frankly, that we as a profession, and shame on me for not talking out more and being more forceful, uh, and others, we have an obligation to speak out against the madness. We have to do things. You know, this is really, you know, I, I was very fascinated as a student for various reasons, and, you know, studying about the rise of the Third Reich. This is getting really scary. And I was very curious, you know, what, what did the legal profession do when Hitler was coming to power? Answer, not a whole hell of a lot, you know, and I think we can and must do better. But to the diversity uh, issue, I, I would really like to see our profession, you know, sort of bend over backwards. You know, I think we do a reasonably good job with pro bono, but I think that we can do a lot more if we utilize tools in a very thoughtful way. I think that the legal system top to bottom has really got to be reevaluated, Dan, because I think as a profession, we are failing. As an industry, I don't think we are, you know, serving uh, uh, our clients or societies as well as we might. This really requires um, a reimagination of what's needed from a societal perspective. You know, what do we need from the legal function? And a real come to Jesus in terms of 
what should a lawyer in today's society really be doing? And the answer is it's got to be a lot more than making seven figures if you're a big firm partner and perpetuating the system. And then, you know, just sort of saying, well, you know, I'm stroking a check, you know, to a pro bono program. I think we really need to do more than that. And I think it all starts with, we should reflect the society that we live in. And we should be much more inclusive. I think we need to be much more culturally aware. If we as a legal profession are not setting the tone, who is? And I absolutely am stunned at how many people, you know, in our legislative branches are lawyers. And, you know, what what are they doing? to say nothing of the oath that they take to pr- protect, you know, and serve people in our, in our democracy. So I think we can and must do more. And I think we have to find a way to speak with a more unified voice. And, and frankly, the ABA, which uh, tries at some point very hard, but I mean, we, we've just got to do more. You use the term reimagining, Mark, and you've been such a big part of that. And and again, this conversation, other conversations we've had, not all of which have been recorded. And in your in your Forbes columns and elsewhere, you've really been a, a great champion to this uh, for this uh, reimagining and this conversation. So I want to want to thank you for this uh, wonderful conversation. I know that the listeners of this of this podcast will benefit from it. And this is uh, Dan Rodriguez from Legal Talk Network. Thank you for uh, joining us. Thanks, Dan. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.